The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd invite you to give your attention to Paul's letter to Titus in the third chapter, verses 4 through 8. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one on the pew rack in front of you. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when the word of God was read, the people stood in honor and respect of that fact. And so let us stand together as we hear God's word read, expecting that God will do that which we just sung about, that he would speak to us, teach us, and build his church. Beginning in verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Shine your truth into our lives, O God, sharpening our awareness of your abundant gifts and attuning us to the signs by which you would lead us. As heirs of your promise, we seek to be guided by your eternal purposes so that the church may make your wisdom known through Christ. Amen. Be seated if you would. The thing that I love about this time of year is a renewed vigor, a renewed energy, a renewed focus to do things that we know we should be doing. Now, there's There's the list that everybody knows is out there. This is the time of year. If you're the owner of a fitness club, you make all your money. But I don't want to, I don't want to talk about those things. There's one thing that I really value. And that is reading the whole Bible in a year, cover to cover. Reading God's word, not necessarily for study, but just to let the word soak on you. And January is always a great time to start reading the Bible. And I, look, I've been there, okay? I know how this goes. 
You start January 1, you've got your Bible reading plan in hand, you've got your hot cup of coffee, you've got your reading chair or nook or wherever it is in your house. And January starts great, you're in Genesis, you're reading about the creation and the flood and God's call to Abraham, Isaac's deception, Jacob, get to Exodus, and you're reading about plagues and commandments and pilgrimage and exile. And you're still sticking with it. You've, you've, you know there's a few gaps built into your plan where you can, you can catch up, but you feel really good about it. You get into Leviticus, and you start getting into the ceremonial law, and it gets a little... Okay, your momentum is waning, you're Now you need like that second cup of coffee before you can really get into it. And then you hit numbers and it's all the genealogies and there your Bible reading plan falls apart. And then you just feel guilty day in and day out because you're further and further behind. You got to catch up, but that means you've got to read through numbers and you just, man. And then there's chronic, oh, and the Bible reading plan just falls apart and you go to Psalms. So I didn't grow up in a Christian tradition that placed a high premium on Bible reading. Um, And so this sort of phenomenon was new to me in terms of reading the Bible through in a a whole year. The other thing that was new to me, um, because again, I didn't grow up in an evangelical tradition per se, is this idea of proof texting. You know what I'm talking about? Where now, there's two types of proof texting, as I've found. One is where someone will paraphrase a verse, and they don't actually cite the verse. The other one is where um, someone's talking in a string of parentheticals, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. See what I'm saying? Here's the danger that I have found in proof texting. Um, it's like the old uh, story about the person that was going to just open the Bible and w- put his finger in at random and whatever it, it said he was going to do it. You've heard this one? He opens the Bible and it, and it says Judas hanged himself. And he said, well, that's not very good. I want to do that. So he rolls the dice again and he flips around and he puts his finger down. It says, go and do likewise. <laughs> See, when you take a verse out of context, uh, it can become dangerous, right? It can become really problematic. And what we've got before us this morning is a proof text that could be a really um, dangerously applied as we think about um, a new year, as we think about Christ's epiphany, as we think about um, being the people of God, uh, manifesting the witness and worship of God. Because what does verse 8 say? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See, if you start there and make that your life's verse, but you don't have in it the context of verses 4 through 7, well, you may have just found Judas's noose. So here's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at this text that talks about some rich, glorious language of the gospel. And see how that then makes verse 8 possible. 
Our main idea this morning is that only in the power of the love of God are we then free to live lives obedient to God. Now, the first thing is what I call the the foundation of joyful obedience. Now, I know you all fairly well. But even if I didn't, I would say there's two types of people that are here in this room. And that's where some danger comes in, in this, in a passage like this. There's the group of people that say, say what? And then there's the group of people that say, so what? Here's the, the danger of the so what crowd. I'm not pointing at you all, by the way. Sorry. The danger in that viewpoint, and, and this comes largely from someone who's walked with Jesus for a number of years and has heard passages like this over and over. And the danger in this viewpoint is that our hearts are only intrigued by the unknown. We really only feel like we got something out of the sermon if we learn something new. And so your hearts are no longer moved by what you know. You're sort of on this constant quest to, recover, to, to learn something new. And certainly, God is every day revealing by his grace and spirit something new to us. But we view things that Paul wrote here in this passage as, eh, it's elementary. The other group of people to say what, there's a lot of loaded words in this passage. There's a lot of things that have deep, profound, abiding meaning to them. And for some of you, it's the first time you've really read this passage. And you're going to say, what now? What does he mean by that? And so the danger for you is you've never really actually thought about what it means to declare that God has saved you. So to the first person, to the so what, let me read for you a quote that I read this week from uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Lloyd-Jones was a um, famous uh, British pastor. And this is what he said. The goal of a lecture is to gain information. The goal of motivation is action. The goal of a sermon is to ignite worship. And so let me challenge you. Don't look at this as a time to assimilate new information you've never heard. Allow this to be a time where your heart is stirred and moved in worship and adoration of God, because that is what this time is for. Along those lines, Jonathan Edwards wrote a pamphlet called Advice to Young Converts, and he says this, when you hear sermons, hear them for yourself, even though what is spoken in them may be more especially directed to the unconverted or those that in other respects are in different circumstances from yourself. And he goes on to write, Let the chief intent of your mind be to consider what ways you can apply the things that you are hearing in the sermon. You should ask, what improvement should I make based on these things for my soul's own good? And now to those of you who may be scratching your head as you read this passage and think about the things that it says. 
What are the takeaways that the words of Paul have for your life? We want to spend just a few moments unpacking the things that are in this passage so that our hearts would be moved to worship and we would be moved to a deeper understanding of what the glorious good news of the gospel is as Paul outlines it for us here in Titus 3. So let's consider right there at verse 5. Paul says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. These words emphasize that our own salvation is a consequence of what was in God's heart, not what was in our heart. The words kindness and love describe God's feeling towards his people. Further, our salvation is not a consequence of what we do, but of what he alone does. Look at that passage. Look at that phrase that says, God, our savior appeared. He uses this term for the appearance, again, relating to a divine rescue by Christ, who is God. You see this in verses four through and six in chapter two, verses 10, 11, and 13. The sense of rescue by another is even more apparent in this phrase, he saved us. The word saved in the New Testament has two forces of meaning. One is to mean simply a rescue from danger. But the other force of meaning that it carries with it is also a rescue from judgment. He rescued you from danger. He rescued you from judgment. Let me put that another way. He rescued you from yourself because you are your greatest danger. And he rescued you from his divine judgment by placing that judgment on Christ. If you've never noticed it before, look at the way that Paul uses pronouns and personal nouns. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And and then again, in the next sentence, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Well, Holy Spirit is God, the Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. You see, one of the things, friends, that the Bible teaches us is that our hearts are not wounded. Our hearts don't simply just err towards sin. Our hearts are dead. In Romans 3, Paul declares, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. When I teach this, uh, sometimes uh, either in officer's training or other uh, Sunday school classes, when we talk about what it is to be dead outside of Christ, I don't mean to be crass, but dead people don't make good decisions. You're dead. You can't of your own volition say, be alive. 
You can't of your own volition say, oh, Jesus died on the cross for me. You're dead. In his mercy, God saved you. God raised you. God gave you a new heart. God washed you with his spirit. It's all him. It's all by his grace. The entire renewal by the Holy Spirit comes through his generous. And when you read generous, see rich or abundant pouring out. Made possible through whom? Jesus Christ our Savior. So did you see this? In verses 4 through 7, our whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, join forces in accomplishing our salvation. We're strongly and specifically told by Paul that our rescue is not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his kind mercy. The idea of rescue from judgment reappears in the statement, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. To be justified is to render or declare righteous. I know you've heard me say it before, but it bears repeating. There are three major chapters in the Christian life. There's the moment that we're saved. We call that justification. Paul uses that word here in Titus 3. There is that ongoing journey between the moment that we're saved and just before that moment that we meet Jesus. And that's called sanctification. And then there's that glorious moment when we see Jesus face to face. And that's called glorification. Now here's the thing. While on earth, we still battle with our sin nature. We still battle with temptation from within that drives us to make bad decisions. It's what is called this, this collision of the old man and the new man. James says in his epistle, why is there quarreling and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And so the very thing that you don't want to do, you do, as Paul talks about in Romans 7. This is all a struggle from within that is manifested in what happens in the choices you make, the behavior that you engage in, the way that you view the world. Because remember, sin is not a behavior. Sin is a condition. Sin is not a behavior. It's a condition. Therefore, for the believer, repentance is a lifestyle, not just an occasional practice. And so why are these three chapters, justification, sanctification, and glorification, so important? At justification, we are freed from the punishment of sin. This idea of being justified or pardoned. We are freed at that moment from our court date. We're freed from having to stand before the judgment seat of God and be declared guilty. 
You're freed from the punishment of sin. That was poured out on Jesus. And then in our sanctification, it is in those moments that, uh, that we live in from this side of Calvary to this side of glory that we are being freed from the power of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin. And beloved in Christ, the, the good news of the, of the world that is to come on that day when the resurrection occurs and we see Jesus face to face in glory, we will be freed then and only then fully and finally from the presence of sin. In our justification, freed from the punishment. In the midst of our sanctification, which if you are a believer in Christ this day, you are right in the middle of your sanctification. Freed from the power of sin. And then in glory, when our bodies are raised and we see Jesus face to face, in that day and that day alone, freed from the presence of sin. Well, we see this here in this text. That to be justified means to render or declare righteous. Grace is unmerited favor that results in God's exerting his holy influence to turn us to Christ. Remember, dead people don't make good decisions. To remove the guilt and power of sin, to increase our faith, to enable our godliness, to keep us and bless us eternally as joint heirs with Christ. I found this quote interesting by Robert Kappen, who writes this. Jesus came to raise the dead. He didn't come to teach the teachable. He didn't come to improve the improvable. He didn't come to reform the reformable. None of those things works. Beloved in Christ, Jesus came to raise dead people to life and put broken things back together. Jesus came to bring dead people to life and put broken things back together. And that is the glorious promise that Paul announces here in the gospel. But this is where this first danger, this so what, comes in. Many of us live day in and day out simply blind to our own brokenness, unable to see our neediness and ignorant of our foolishness. The Christian life has become nothing more for us than a collection of activities or radio stations or books to read or jargon to speak. We're not simultaneously horrified by our own sin and at the same time moved to gratitude and adoration of God in his graciousness. As he once again assures us, you are not guilty. Beloved, some of you need to hear this today. You're just as much in need of God's grace now as you were when you first believed. Put it another way, you need Jesus just as badly on your best days as you need him on your worst days. But then there's another group in here. And that's the group that just struggles with grace. Because it doesn't compute. It doesn't add up. It's not logical. You know, many of you who have been through our inquirers class know that we do a written interview before you join the church. And, and one of the boxes that people check on there is, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Now, 
so many of you would write, you would write a beautiful profession of faith that you believe in Jesus Christ. You know you're a sinner. You know that you need God's grace. You know that you've been saved. And you know how many people check not sure on that box? One of the most common pastoral calls that the elders and I make when people are considering joining this church is talking with people about that question. Because at the end of the day, grace is just too good to be true. And we all struggle with appropriating that all the promises in Christ are yes and amen to us. And so if that's you this morning, if you're a believer and you're struggling of how could this possibly be true for me, know this. God has saved you. If Christ be in your heart this day, your sins are forgiven. Be at peace. If you're not a believer in Christ this morning, none of this is for you. It could be, but it isn't right now. If you're still living your life trying to curry God's favor or merit God's approval, listen, it won't work. Take it from one that tried for years to do that. It won't work. Because you're trying to live out of the implications of verse 8 of Titus 3 without first considering verses 4 through 7. It's Judas's noose. But if you have the power of the gospel, if you understand who you are in Christ, then let's consider a few application points. And this is what I'm talking about. The love of God is the fuel for joyful obedience. I just want to think about three application points as we close. The first thing, did you see what Paul said in verse eight? This is a, what did he say? This saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. You know what that probably means? Scholars probably think that what he had just said in verses four through seven was at the very least something that would have been repeated week in and week out in Christian worship, if not a hymn the church would sing. And so Paul is saying, let the gospel be a song stuck in your head. Have you ever had that happen before? It's great when you get a really luscious piece of music stuck in your head and it's just on repeat. Uh, We sang... um, uh, John Rutter's uh, What's Sweeter Music, which is a choral adaptation of uh, Robert Herrick's poem. That's how I memorized Herrick's poem. And I love having that song stuck in my head. The flip side of that is um, anything on Nick Jr. I don't know how they do it, but all the kids shows that Nathaniel watches, I just have to hear 15 seconds of it and I can't get the song out of my head for two weeks. In the little shrill voices. And what Paul is saying here is let the gospel, let the, let, the, let the indicatives of the gospel be a song stuck in your head. What's the second thing I want you to think about? Because Paul is saying out of the wellspring of strength and grace that comes in the gospel, do good works. Well, some of you are saying, oh, I don't want to live a holy life. It puts a damper on things. And two you, I would pose this question. 
if serving a holy God in this life is such an inconvenience and drudgery, what makes you think heaven's going to be a happy place for you? Because really, the works that, God, that Paul is talking about here are so that the glory and fame of God would be returned both unto him and to everyone, both believer and non-believer, that you would come in contact with. Third thing, quickly. One of the things that this passage calls us to do implicitly is to reorient our prayer life. Have you ever, have any of you heard the idea about praying, praying God's word back to him? It's pretty straightforward to do in the Psalms, but maybe some of you would be struggling with how to do that with this passage. So let me give you three R's. Okay. This is not original to me. Uh, I ran across it on the blog of a pastor named Kevin DeYoung this week, but I thought it was really helpful. Three R's rejoice, repent, request. Okay. And I want you to see how that works in this passage. Rejoice that God has sought you, saved you, sustains you, and is sanctifying you by his grace. Repent of the ways that you have boasted in works that you have done in self-righteousness, ways that you have acted in like you were not grateful for his mercy, ways in which you have not lived as one washed, but jumped back into the mud puddle. And then thirdly, request. Request that out of that wellspring of strength, that God would then give you the grace to live into verse 8. Request that he, that, you, that he would give you the grace so that you would not forget that you are saved, loved, rejoiced over, forgiven, set apart, heirs to an eternal hope. So what do we do with this? Over the um, week of... Between Christmas and New Year, Jen and I finally got to catch up on some things that had sort of backlogged on our DVR that we wanted to watch. And and one of them was a movie. Um, As many of you know, because you're the obligatory sitter for your kids and grandkids, um, us young families with young kids don't get to get out all that much. Toddlers don't make good movie companions. So we got to watch a movie that came out several years ago. Do you remember Disney Pixar's movie Up? Did any of you see it? Anybody? Okay. So the movie is about um, an elderly widower named Carl Fredrickson. Now, Carl was faced with the prospect of being sent against his will to a retirement home. And so to get away from that, he decides to fulfill a lifelong dream of his and his wife's and head off to Paradise Falls in South America. Now, if you saw the trailers or the advertisements for the movie, I'm not giving anything away. He fills thousands upon thousands of helium balloons and picks his whole house up and flies it to South America. Well, you remember that Carl's journey tells us 
about the dangers of hanging on to a dream, even if it's a good one. Because Carl was so obsessed with getting to Paradise Falls that he lost sight of the important things in his life. He meets a little boy named Russell. He makes friends with a dog as only they can in a Disney movie. But all those things were a distraction and an obstruction for him on this uh, near tyrannical quest to fulfill what he thought was his wife's dying wish. If you remember the movie, there was a glorious moment that happened when he finally gets to Paradise Falls. And he takes his wife's memory book where she was going to fill in all the adventures that they shared together in South America. And he opens it and he flips past the first page. And he sees that instead, she had filled in all the memories of their life together before she died. You see, Carl had been set free all along, but never knew it. Beloved, the good news of the gospel for you this morning is Christ is well pleased with you. Not some future far off better version of yourself, but right now he is well pleased with you. And he's not calling you into an adventure of doing good and righteous works for the glory and praise of God and the betterment of all. Because the jury's still out on whether you make the grade. He's freed you. He's loved you. He's declared you his. He's declared you righteous. And so as you make New Year's resolutions, you're free to fail. Even if you don't make it through numbers, even if you don't make it to the gym beyond January 6th, you're free. You're not behind the curve having to make up ground. You can pick back up, start over fresh, and walk forward in grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, I forget this. My brothers and sisters forget this. Help us live in light of your grace, the sure hope and assurances of the gospel, because we need it, because we forget it, because we can't do it without you. We know you've provided grace upon grace for us in all things, as you have demonstrated in your word, as this table is set before us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.